a never-ending eternity of being the recipients of the grace of God as He shows us increasing acts of kindness. That's what awaits the believer. Paul plainly there wants us to make a a parallel connection between the power needed to raise Jesus out of the tomb and the power needed to open your eyes to his beauty. That's the power of the deadness that we were in and the power that raised us out of that deadness. Paul here, he's talking about not something that's just difficult. He's talking about something that's impossible. Let's think about how Jesus put this same sort of thing. You remember the story in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus is talking about the same thing. There's, there's a rich man that turns his back and leaves Jesus. And right after this episode, Jesus tells this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 24. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is one of those places where our modern culture can, if we're not careful and we look at this verse through the lens of our modern culture, we'll totally misunderstand it. Because our culture teaches us that, well, yeah, if you're a person of means and a person of wealth, then faith in God is sort of harder for you because you aren't this needy kind of person. And so casting yourself upon God is easier for you, right? So don't we just naturally understand that material wealth, earthly means are an inhibitor to faith? That It's a barrier that has to be overcome. Don't we understand that? Sort of, that, that's intuitive, right? Jesus' hearers understood just the opposite. To Jesus' hearers, wealth, earthly wealth, was not an inhibitor to faith or salvation. It was an enabler of salvation. Because in Jesus' day, it was believed that part of salvation, a necessary part of salvation, was the giving of alms to the poor. That's why we read about giving alms so much in the Scriptures, particularly the Old Testament. Now, we understand that to be an effect of salvation, a consequence of salvation. But in Jesus' day, that was widely understood to be a necessary part of salvation. And so if part of salvation is giving alms to the poor, who would be the best suited for salvation? Those who had the most to give to the poor. So in Jesus' day, a wealthy person was considered to be an easier person to attain salvation than harder. So notice what Jesus' hearers are hearing here. And you can tell it by their reaction. What they're hearing Jesus say is, the one that you thought was easier to find salvation, I'm telling you is not easier, it's impossible. That's what his, that's what his hearers are hearing at this moment. So now here's something else we've got to look at in this passage. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So I know you've all heard this, you've all heard this. The needle gate? Who's heard that? where the camel had to get on his knees, and that's what Jesus is saying. Camel had to get down on his knees and cross through this needle gate and through the, through the wall of Jerusalem. Heard that? Totally false. There never was anything such as a needle gate. There is absolutely zero historical evidence that there ever was a needle gate. That story is traced back to the 15th century. Never was there any such... There's no archaeological evidence for it. There's no textual evidence for it. 
And in fact, that goes completely against Jesus's point. This whole needle gate, camel crawling through it thing is completely made up for the purpose of saying salvation. Well, you just got to get down on your knees and humble yourself and then you can crawl through. Is that what Jesus was saying? Jesus's meaning was plain. You ever tried to thread a needle? I mean, one side, you know how hard that is? Jesus's meaning is think of a camel. How much does a camel weigh? 1,500 pounds? Think of a camel going through the eye of a needle. That's how hard it is for the one that you consider easy to have salvation. That's how hard it is for them. That's why Jesus summarizes it with this concluding statement. What's impossible with men is possible with God. That's why Jesus' hearers said, when Jesus said this, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. They said, well, who then can be saved? Why would they say that if there was this needle gate that camels crawled through every day? Jesus' point was not to say salvation is hard and you must humble yourself. His point was, it's impossible. To make yourself alive to God is not something you can do. To make yourself alive to God is something God must do. And it requires the power that raised Christ out of the tomb to do that. So that's how Jesus approaches this whole thing. And if we put this together with what Paul just said, the great love that caused God to unleash such a power as this upon dead sinners. Those two ideas should come together in your mind right now with just a great force and say that had to be an incredible love that will cause God to unleash such a power, such a necessary power to act on such a dead person as myself. If the Spirit has opened your eyes to verse 1, 2, and 3, and He's seated that into your soul, and you see yourself in those verses, and then Paul says, the great love of God moved him to unleash the greatest power in the universe to act upon you. But he then pauses here. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now, in the English Standard, there's a couple of M dashes, E-M, M dashes. Your edition might have parentheses or something. And all those are correct because what that is is sort of a side thought, a parenthetical thought. Paul interrupts the flow of his own sentence here to say what he's going to say when he gets to verse 8. He's going to say the same thing in verse 8. But he interrupts his thought here because it's almost like he just can't wait to get there to say it by grace. By grace. By grace, you have been saved. But when he says you have been saved... We must ask the question, saved from what? Paul doesn't say it here. But whenever the Scriptures teach that you have been saved, teach your soul to ask the question, from what? What was I saved from? Because the answer to that question not only is very important, the answer to that question is something that's been greatly perverted in our day. Saved from what? 
today has become saved from a pointless life, saved from an unproductive life, saved from a bad marriage, saved from bad decisions, saved from a life that was meaningless. And all those things can be so very true of salvation, but that's not what we're saved from. Paul doesn't say it here, but the scriptures tell us elsewhere very plainly what we are saved from. Paul says in Romans 5 verse 9, Since therefore we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Paul just said that in our sins and trespasses, we were fit objects of wrath. We were right objects of wrath. Put that together with Romans 5, 9, and the wrath that we were right objects for is the wrath of God. John 3 and verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It is important for us to see that we are saved from wrath and that we are saved from the wrath of God. That's important to see. Because the wrath that we are saved from is the righteous, correct, just wrath of God. We talked last week about wrath. All of us have wrath. I have wrath. You have wrath. All of our wrath is wrong. All of our wrath is fallen and it's all sinful. And when you experience my wrath, you're experiencing something wrong. But the wrath of God is not like our wrath. His wrath is perfect and righteous and just. His wrath is not this emotional outburst. He hasn't run out of patience. It is the settled opposition to sin. And so the righteous wrath of God is what we were fitting objects for. Now that's really important to see because Jesus, our rescuer, didn't rescue us from some kidnapper that wrongly kidnapped us and is holding us ransom. The ransom of Jesus is not to ransom you from some unjust thing that's been done to you. The ransom of Jesus is not to ransom you from a really bad childhood that got you started on the wrong path in life and so you made a lot of bad decisions because of it. The ransom of Jesus is to ransom you from the perfectly just, correct, right, true wrath of God. That's helpful for us to see. We're not saved from something unjust. We're not saved from just bad circumstances. We're not saved from a life that just didn't go our way. We didn't have the advantages that other people had. We're saved from the right, true wrath of God. So by grace you have been saved, verse 6, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So here we see words speaking about the exaltation of the believer, the raising us up with Him and seating us with Him. So how do we understand this? How do we understand this raising us up And I think there's two mistakes we can make here. First of all, we can understand this to mean too much and we can understand it to mean too little. Here's what I mean by that. When Paul says he's raised us up and seated us, here's what he's not talking about. He's not talking about literally. He's not talking about the literal resurrection. The literal resurrection comes at the end of this age when Jesus returns and then there's a resurrection. There is a real physical literal resurrection that is coming Paul's not talking about that. He's talking about not the literal resurrection, but the other mistake we can make is that he's talking metaphorically. And he's not not talking metaphorically either. He's not talking about the idea of a resurrection. He's not making a word picture here. He's talking about a real, true resurrection that's not literal, that's not physical, but it is 
spiritual. We have been truly, really in reality, spiritually raised and spiritually seated with Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, we've talked at length about being raised, and that has a lot to do with how we had no preference for God. We had a bias against God. We saw no beauty in God. Now we have been open to that, and we see Him, and we prefer Him. We prefer the eternal over the earthly. But this seated with Christ, what does that mean that we are seated with Him? Well, here's what it has to... I don't know what it all means, but here's here's what it at least has to mean. It has to mean this. Scripture speaks of being seated as what? Receiving authority. Receiving a kingdom. Sitting in judgment. That's what being seated is all about in the Scriptures. So what this means at the very minimum is this means all that has been given to Christ has been given to us. That's a staggering thought, but I'll just direct your thoughts back to chapter 1, verses 4 through 14. And I would suggest to you that the immensity of that thought fits in perfectly with the flow of verses 4 through 14 of chapter 1. The unbelievable blessings that Paul describes in chapter 1 fit perfectly with the truth here that Paul is saying at the very minimum, what has been given to Christ has been given to you. And what has been given to Christ? The kingdom. We talked this past Wednesday about how the the kingdom of God has burst into the kingdom of man. And Jesus has been given all authority, yet that authority is not fully consummated yet. And so there's this age in which we're living in which the kingdom of light has burst into the kingdom of darkness, but it has not overcome the kingdom of darkness yet. That kingdom is ours just like it's Christ's. What has been given to Him has been given to us. I don't even know how to flesh that out because that is such an incredible reality that the Scripture says to us. But do you see any way that it could mean less than that? To be seated with Christ spiritually has to mean that what's given to Him is ours too. The kingdom that has been given to Him that's not fully consummated yet has also been given to us and it's not fully consummated yet. But then the last thing for us to see is the final verse of our text this morning, verse 7. So that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Wow. The eternity that awaits us is an eternity of God continually, increasingly showing kindness to us to greater and greater extents. Do you remember back in chapter 1? Chapter 1, verse 6. Chapter 1, verse 12. Chapter 1, verse 14. Do you remember those three times that we saw that, that phrase repeated? To the praise of His glory. To the praise of His glory. To the praise of His grace. Remember that? And we talked about how all those things that God was doing in eternity past, all those things that God had done in time to save His people, All those things had an ultimate purpose, and that ultimate purpose was to bring glory to God. Now, how does that work out? Well, we also said, just earlier today, we said that when God, when we think of God, when we think of His heart, when we think of His character, what does He want us most to think of? He he wants us most to think of Him as grace 
compassion, mercy, love. And so for eternity, God will show us grace by showing us kindness, which will cause us for eternity to marvel more and more and more and more on the heart of God. A never-ending eternity of being the recipients of the grace of God as He shows us increasing acts of kindness. That's what awaits the believer. And that's what Paul has to pray, that the Spirit would work into the hearts of the Ephesians, into the hearts of us here today, because that is beyond the capacity for a brain, for a human mind to get around the Maker who would make us the objects of His love, the Maker who would choose us before the foundation of the world, the Maker who would want us. Chapter 1, verse 4, He would choose us. He would want us before Him, that we might be before Him. So He wants us to be with Him. He wants us to be His family. He has adopted us. He has redeemed us. He has sealed us with Himself. And He has made us the eternal objects of His love, thereby making us the eternally parallel to His happiness and joy. And He has set aside a home for us in which He sovereignly intends for eternity to show us more and more grace and more and more kindness. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.